Welcome to Media Roots Radio. Welcome to World War Three World Crisis Radio <laughs> with Webster Tarpley. How are you doing today, Abby? Doing okay. Doing okay, all things considered. I'm sitting here in my ivory tower making all these shit takes about Ukraine. Now, I mean, sadly, that's that's how I feel. It's just like a lot of people with no skin in the game um, just... You know, all of the takes, whether it's the foreign policy wonks and all these bloodthirsty war hawks or just people sitting on social media, just pontificating and defending, you know, Mm -hmm. military aggression, basically for unknown reasons. I think it just like has to do with just the complete indoctrination of just a permanent war state that we live in. And sadly, that bleeds over where war is glorified so much that you kind of end up apologizing for it. And I, I just don't think war is ever the answer, um, and it should always be the the absolute last resort because war is hell and people die needlessly. Yeah, and then I think this is different than it's one thing when we're constantly being told to condemn Assad and to you know focus on Assad's brutality in the war against his own people when there were so many other factors going into that, like U.S. sponsorship of rebels, the U.S. sponsorship of the original uprising. This is different when when a leader crosses the border and actually starts like attacking like a capital city. It's hard to, let's just say it's really hard optically in really any scenario to be like, well, this is self-defense. Even though there's a lot of con- context and things that led up to this situation, it's such a cartoonish um, move, shocking, brazen move on his part that it's it's kind of like, well, how do you actually, how do you spin this, even if you're the most anti-U.S. pro-Russian person ever, is like not an aggressive maneuver. You know, the U.S., it's very easy to paint the U.S. as the aggressor, the meddler, always doing shady shit to try to, you know, start coups in other countries. But once you brazenly actually start like bombing another like country over their border, it's hard to be like, well, the U.S. you know invaded Iraq, so that is like not a big deal. I mean, like at a certain point, you kind of just have to admit, yeah, that he is bombing Ukraine. Really shocking. Uh, Like it's it just at a certain point, it's like you just have to acknowledge what's happening. So I do think a lot of people are in, in denial about it and they've backed themselves into a corner where they, I mean, a lot of these same people who are taking that posture now saying like, yay, this is the denazification of Ukraine. We're also saying like, this is, there's no way this is going to happen. So, yeah, I mean, so yeah, it's so, like, you know, on, on one hand, those people should be like, wow, I can't believe this actually happened. But, you know, on, on one hand, I, I support this. That would almost seem like more, you know, even though I wouldn't be on board with them it would seem more logical uh but it's like a lot of people sort of moving the goalposts around i think almost all of us have to admit especially in the world of anti-imperialism that we never for a second believed that western intelligence and the u.s government could have called and predicted this so accurately i mean that in of itself is like kind of just like it's a new experience for me i don't (laughs) I don't have that experience very often. All the, that's why I was saying in the last episode, what are they going to do when he doesn't invade? Like the amount of energy they were pouring into being like, he's going to invade. Here's the time. It just seems so specific. I was like, what are, like, how do they know this? And what if he doesn't? But he did. And 
you know, they called it, uh, which is quite remarkable. And I'm still processing all of this. I don't really know. Yeah, I, mean, I, I already started rambling too much. So why don't you go? Yeah, no, I think it's a good place to start, which is people should listen to the last episode that we did that essentially gives crucial, very important context to, to everything that led up to this point. Other than, of course, these semi-autonomous regions that were taken over by Russian separatists, that there have has been this mini civil war ensuing since Euromaidan and the coup that we didn't touch upon, that we should have. And I actually didn't know enough about that to include that in the last episode. But of course, all of that context needs to be laid out and understood. And that's exactly what our last episode did. And so I find it really instructive and useful to understand that history. And I don't know how much we want to belabor that history again. We can definitely go into some of it. But in the last episode, we talked about the near impossibility for Western intelligence to get it right this time, right? I don't need to explain that. I think that everyone who's a listener of Media Roots Radio knows that the last thing you want to do is take the CIA or intelligence services from the West at their word. They've been wrong on nearly every single thing in the last 20 years, probably far longer than that. I mean, as long as I've been alive. Everything that I know about U.S. history, I take the opposite of what the U.S. has said about it. So that is like the smartest way to analyze anything is it's like whatever the U.S. is saying, you could pretty much assume it's much murkier or or probably the opposite side of the story is something that you need to take into account. But in terms of this situation, that isn't what happened. And so that can explain why so many people were in profound disbelief when it did happen including myself. And I first need to say I apologize for getting it wrong. I think a lot of people got it wrong. And I saw many people having ridiculous takes like, you know, like we need to just cancel everyone who said that Russia wasn't capable of this and like, blah, blah, blah. This proves that we need to listen to like Western intelligence and like the US government and all this shit. And it's like, no, that's not what this means at all. This just is an interesting case Because it wasn't just people who are distrustful of Western intelligence services or the U.S. government or the U.S. empire. No, it was very high profile Russian commentators, experts within Russia, Ukrainian political officials themselves were saying this. Defense strategists that are Ukrainian, like they have inside intel. They are there on the ground. They have skin in the game. They were saying it was never going to happen. They were saying that Zelensky was just using the U.S. to bolster up its own armed forces and security status and and whatnot. No one honestly thought that Putin would throw a match into a tinderbox. And I certainly didn't think that he would take the bait that was being set up for him by the NATO alliance and the U.S. for so long especially because the argument's been made that he has been more reserved in his response immediately following the 2014 coup. The annexation of Crimea, as much as I disagreed with that, especially being used as an instrument at Russia today, when this whole thing happened, looking back on that, I mean, there wasn't bloodshed there, right? There was no bombs dropped. Um, It's a completely different situation, that annexation, whether or not it was legal in its basis or not. This is a completely different situation. This isn't something that just happens overnight. Russia clearly had been planning this for a long time. And this was on the table strategically for a very long time. I, the question is, where is it going to go from here? 
because it could get really fucking ugly. On the other hand, Ukraine can fold immediately and completely acquiesce to Russia's demands. I think that over the last 72 hours, we've seen a lot play out that you're going to get into and that I can comment on. But that's where I am right now. I'm flabbergasted. But the more I realize the situation, I at least understand like that this isn't just like a it's not that Putin just snapped and was like, OK, I ha it's like this obviously. I mean, here's, yeah, now I'm rambling. So no, no, no. I mean, I just wanted to comment on what you just said. It's not like Putin snapped. Interestingly, I was looking up to see what, you know, our favorite neocons from the very heavy agenda era are saying now in the wake of the invasion. And it's weird. This is a weird thing. Fred Kagan said straight up, Russia, this is a quote from him, Russia will likely attack Ukraine the week of February 21st, 2022. The Kremlin has deployed sufficient military forces and set informational conditions to conduct offensive operations, including limited incursions into occupied Ukraine, a comprehensive air and missile campaign, and large-scale mechanized drives on Kiev and other major Ukrainian cities. I mean, that's pretty dead-on accurate. Obviously, Fred Kagan is a completely linked in with U.S. intel. Now, what's really fascinating is right after that, Abby, uh, Fred Kagan said this today. He believes that he predicted almost everything correctly. And I'll play a little clip here, actually, in the podcast. But that he did not expect Putin to suddenly go crazy in his own words. So that's that's the weird, this is a kind of a weird, confusing contradiction paradox here. Because like he called it extremely accurately. Fred Kagan, who's probably tapped in to the in, you know most internal, inside, insulated intelligence sectors in the U.S., but then he's also saying Putin must have been crazy for actually doing it. So I don't know what to make of that. It's like, well, if you thought for sure he was going to do it this t at this time and you predicted it pretty accurately, then didn't you already think he was crazy? Like, why now that he's done it, he's crazy? So that's interesting. I mean, that's just an odd. I don't know what to make of that comment. I don't know if you have any response to that. I mean, it seems like, yeah, it seems like all of these people actually didn't think he would do it either. It's like they wanted, it's like their strategy with all the foreign policy hawks in D.C. was like almost like exposing them before they did it. Yeah. And maybe hoping that like the scare. pressure would make them back down. Yeah. But it's like, and it like is fucking crazy that like Putin did it anyway, even though like the West was just like, boy, you cried wolf. Like we're going to like totally blast this shit out there for six months straight. No, I think. I think you have a really good point. Maybe there was a strategy here, Abby, where some sector of this world thought that, well, if they fully lay out and expose and, and sort of show Putin, you know, there's been like, I just, I've been watching like tons of stupid comic book animated adaptations. And like, I was just watching one where the Justice League is about to launch a huge um, invasion against Apocalypse and kill Darkseid secretly. And while they're launching and talking about their plans, it cuts to Darkseid secretly listening to like a recording, like a live feed of them planning the whole thing. So, yeah, you would you would think that Putin would like see all this stuff coming out in the news and be like, oh, they know they've, they're they on to my game. I'm going to change the strategy or something. Um, but instead, it seems like he just did exactly what they said he was going to do. And that that's the part that is just like, wow, that's. That's an unusual response to being like exposed. If this is what the strategy was sort of on, you know, in response to what you were saying, like if they were trying to expose him as a way to prevent him from doing, from doing it, 
it's like it's almost like Russia knew that the U.S. was bluffing in a sense in terms of the strong response that they were threatening to issue if Russia did indeed do this. And I'm speaking could be completely out of turn because this is still so fresh of a situation. But based on the response so far from the from the U.S. and Imperial junior partners, it does seem like they know that if they send they can't like send troops into Ukraine. Right. NATO isn't officially in Ukraine. That, that's the whole basis of all of this. But it's like other than the weapons that were sent and the quote unquote insurgency that was trained by the CIA, it does seem like really quickly the Ukrainian army is like folding. Like they're like literally stopping cars of all, thousands of people who are trying to flee into Poland and to such and like pulling them. people out to try to force them to conscript in the Ukrainian army, like anyone who's like a military age male. And these photos of like the Ukrainian army stationed in different areas to fend off Russian forces, like they look fucking pathetic. Like what is going on here? I mean, this is the problem. We're already getting really contradictory information about the actual situation, the actual death toll, the actual casualty count. Mm -hmm. Of course, the Western media is leaning harder than they ever do in the direction of look at these horrible you know, results uh, from these Russian armaments or killing all these civilians. You don't know how high the civilian death toll is yet. You know, they would never do that with any oh, U.S. launched war. But that's the slant in all the Western media coverage. It's very, very... You know, the, the tone is very extreme. They're even calling, I saw a BBC report last night saying the snarling Russian President Putin gives his speech. So they're even amping up the rhetoric from before. You know, I mean, yeah, they would really demonize Putin uh, on most of Western media networks for years and years, but calling him the snarling Russian president, that's a new one I haven't heard before. Um, so they're going more hyperbolic. And, you know, uh, some US intel figures, according to, uh, Twitter follower of mine, he said he heard an, a CIA guy, he think it might have been on Bloomberg, saying it's almost as if Putin did everything according to our script, <laughs> expressing surprise at that. But here's what's confusing. It's brilliant. All dude. this footage that we're seeing, I would say so far from what I've seen with my own eyes, about 25% of it is footage from other places being posted on social media. So you see a, pi a picture, an infamous picture that a lot of people probably even remember from the last Gaza bombardment uh, via Israel, um, showing a building blowing up at night. Uh, that's being passed around as if it's uh, from Kiev. I mean, there have been bombardments on Kiev that have looked almost as bad as this, but this picture is not from there. It's from Gaza from last year. There was another picture of a Russian paratrooper like TikTok videoing himself, like paratrooping into somewhere. And it was, it was shown online and went viral as a Russian soldier records himself invading Ukraine. It's actually a video from 2016. So you just got to be really careful what you spread around right now. I, I see, I've even seen anti-imperialists uh, just sort of casually reposting some of these videos and clips that turn out not to be real. But on the other hand, there are, I just saw a really weird, crazy video clip few hours ago with a what was described as a russian tank just running over like a ukrainian guy's car on a highway and then like crushing it looks pretty brutal i don't know if it's a russian tank or not if it is it's pretty fucked up and that video is already making the rounds and that video is sort of going viral right now just jumping in here to say that i'm gonna add a little more commentary to this a couple days after we recorded 
Yeah, one more really weird story that I saw highlighted and went completely viral for up until today, basically. It's like everywhere um, about those 13 soldiers on Snake Island in the Black Sea that Russia was invading and they they asked the soldiers to surrender. And the officer on the board told the Russian warship to go fuck yourself. And this clip was like, you know, being circulated everywhere. Even Zelensky was talking about how these guys were heroes. And like, I have no comment on that. I mean, it was kind of a sad clip, but then it comes out from Russian media. <laughs> like, it's kind of reminds me of the Syria chemical weapons thing. It's like, literally like the opposite narrative comes out and you're like, wait a minute, was this completely made up or is Russian media completely making this up? Like what is going on here? Um, so then just today or yesterday, Russian media put out a video of 82 soldiers surrendering at Snake Island um, and like being given water bottles and stuff. And it was just like, what the fuck is going on here? Like, it reminded me of the Syria chemical weapons attack where, you know, all the Western media was saying that Assad used chemical weapons. And then you had Russian media showing like these people being interviewed about how like the white helmets came in there and just threw water on everyone and like in the hospital and like there was no attack. It was just like, what the fuck is going on here? Like who is who is making up what, you know, was this a fake story and the Western media just ran with it? Or was it or or was it real? And like is Russian media trying to like fake this thing? It's just like such a crazy mindfuck to think about. Just bouncing off Abby's little addition here, it's become so convoluted. The fact that this many like fake video clips have been distributed, this many false stories have been distributed this quickly in the wake of this. You would think on some level it'd be like, wow, they're really blowing their credibility by running with so much fake information. But on the other hand, this is going to sound really conspiratorial, but is there some kind of strategy by the West to also flood the scene with, you know, we talk so much about disinformation as if disinformation often often serves a specific purpose to like, you know, create a specific narrative. What if there's another purpose to flooding the scene with disinformation from the West side to just basically make it so that you really can't tell what's going on and that it'll work on a certain segment of the population. They won't even care. They won't even need the media to do like a mea culpa to be like, oh yeah, we actually got this wrong because they'll just like go to the next thing. There's a segment of the population that doesn't care about like media accountability. There's another segment of the population that just automatically distrusts anything, you know, on certain media networks um, because of like partisanship or different political affiliations. And I think at a certain point, you do have to wonder if there's some purpose to just making it confusing to the point where we actually cannot tell what's going on. Because that's what we were accusing Russia of doing in the original incursion to an extent. But I kind of wonder if we're doing it now and just not giving a shit. Um, I know that sounds really conspiratorial because it was Zelensky himself who actually came out and said that these soldiers on Snake Island died valiantly standing up to uh, Russian aggression. But it turns out, um, as Abby said, uh, that this was seemingly just a totally fake story. Um, even the recording is in question if they actually did tell them to go F themselves. But CNN actually had to do a retraction. Um, well, actually, let's see. What did their original headline say? 
Yeah, I wish I could see what the original headline said, but it, basically they had to do an update to their story saying, update, the Ukrainian soldiers on Snake Island were all feared to have been killed in the Russian attack on February 24th. On February 28th, however, the Ukrainian Navy released a statement saying the troops were alive and well, but were forced to surrender due to lack of ammunition. So this is today, um, the last day of February that I'm reading this to you. We originally recorded this like, I think on the 24th or maybe even the 25th, but very weird how confusing it is to tell what's going on. Um, it's even confusing the shit out of like the, these neocon strategists like Fred Kagan, which I'll explain a little bit later. Um, but just a couple other things I wanted to say about this uh, situation right now is I did want to add an addendum uh, because I did incorrectly say that the U.S. did not back kicking Russia out of the SWIFT international banking um, digital system. Well, now that now after we recorded the episode, the U.S. is actually backing that move. So there is movements made in, in that direction now. So if you hear me contradict that, just hear me now that the most updated information is that the U.S. is now backing a removal from SWIFT. But again, there's all these people breathing down the neck of the Biden administration basically acting like it's still not enough. We still need to impose stronger sanctions. There's always a faction that is always trying to out-hawk the current administration. That's just always how it's going to be. And it seems like right now, it does seem like right now the consensus is overall to just push Biden's administration more and more hawkish. But other than that, it is still a little ambiguous, like what is going on if Russian planes are dropping you know, bombs, where these missiles are coming from. There does seem to be a little bit of ambiguity and stealthness with the way that Russia is like even launching this invasion, let's just say. Even though there are Russian troops in Ukraine right now, like making movements all over the place, I, I'm surprised I'm not seeing more video footage of it. Um, even on mainstream media, I don't know if you've seen, there's not like really much overt video footage of this like invasion fully happening. It's it's a little confusing still, just from watching video. And I'm not and I'm not implying at all that it's not really happening. It's just like it's it's confusing at this point. That's extremely accurate to what the situation is as it unfolds. Of course, we don't want to take the Western media's line at face value. They're notorious for lying, manufacturing things, spreading around false images, not retracting them. So, And they have obviously a vested interest in hyping this up, sensationalizing it as much as possible, moralizing aside about the sheer hypocrisy of the fact that the, this is being covered in the way that it is. I'm not taking the Russian side either at face value. That's what's so funny to me. It's like like the fact that Russia announced that it's only striking military targets, that it doesn't plan to occupy Ukraine, that its intent is to, quote, denazify and demilitarize Ukraine, end quote. And those statements are being uncritically regurgitated by people, this binary understanding of the situation is really unhelpful and like for me i just i just like don't understand why we have to glorify what russia does or why many people feel like they need to glorify what russia does and it's like russia is an anti-communist capitalist oligarchy putin for the last several weeks has been giving these crazy anti-communist speeches decrying the soviet union cheering on taking down all these statues of Lenin. 
It's like, dude, this guy is not an ally to the left. So can we just step back for a minute and kind of look at the situation with like an independent lens? Whatever is happening in these semi-autonomous regions um, that Putin just declared that they were like independent a couple of days ago, which kind of precipitated all of this, like that does not justify bombing innocent people. I don't believe that only military targets have been hit. Um, and I just don't understand why that's an, a controversial take. Like, I feel like this could have been avoided, right? And and the thing is, to make declarative statements and to make predictive statements, like, Putin had to do this, like, what other choice did he have? It's like, what if it does fucking escalate into a full-scale, like, atrocious, like, mass human rights violations? Like, we don't know where this is going to go. Is Ukraine really a Nazi state? Is it really run by Nazis? That's a, an absurdly cartoonish take on the situation. Yes, of course there's a Nazi problem. Yes, of course Nazis were front and center with the Euromaidan protests. But it's absurd to say that this is a coup government that is a Nazi regime and justifying that to, to do whatever the fuck you want to them. That's the same dehumanization that you apply to ISIS, Al-Qaeda, countries with brown people that we normalize endless bombing campaigns against, you don't fucking know how many Nazis are in Ukraine. There's Nazis here in the U.S. This is another part that I added some commentary to later on. Yeah, it's really interesting. I just did an incredible one and a half hour live stream with Brian Becker, who's a longtime anti-war organizer, uh, socialist organizer. And he, of course, gives incredibly crucial insight. He has an encyclopedic knowledge of the entire history of the Soviet Union and everything that's led us up to today. Um, and he gives a really honest and accurate assessment on the presence of Nazism, this claim that Ukraine is a Nazi regime and we need to denazify Ukraine. Yes, there was a strong Nazi presence in the coup, there was a lot of Nazis that advanced in positions of power in the armed forces and the government after the coup, but that dynamic has shifted dramatically since then. Zelensky um, was actually elected, I think, in 2019 on pretty much a referendum to make peace with Russia. He is a Jewish Ukrainian. There are millions, of, I'm sure, of Jewish people that live in Ukraine. And it's just totally cartoonish to basically lend credibility to this narrative that Ukraine is full of Nazis. It's a very dehumanizing narrative. It reminds me of just the ISIS al-Qaeda argument that it's okay to just bomb, relentlessly bomb and attack people because ISIS might be on the ground. Yes, of course there are Nazis there, but that does not give Putin carte blanche to do what he's doing. There should be international law that we should all respect that should be applied equally to every country in the world, right? And I believe in that. I believe in that um, and that idea that there should be a standard of law applied, and that means not illegally invading a country. Um, you know, and even China actually came out with a really good statement where they basically said, you know, we respect Russia's security concerns, and that needs to be taken into account. But like, we also respect Ukrainian sovereignty, and Russia basically needs to remove its troops and negotiate immediately. So I think um, there's just a lot of nuance to be had here. Oh, and also one thing that Brian mentioned is that the Nazi party, I guess, got only like 2% of the vote in the last round of elections. So it really shows you how the dynamic has shifted, 
how little the Nazis have control like directly over the government, even though there might be a significant more control over the armed forces. It is not true to say that it's a Nazi regime. And it's pretty ridiculous that Putin is alleging that and that people are just uncritically parroting that. Yeah, he also has a really good segment on the live stream that we did about a multipolar world versus a unipolar world and what threats that could exacerbate just having large competitors who basically are destined to go to war with each other at that point, kind of similar to World War I, where all these imperial powers were basically fighting against each other because the world had already been colonized. And I think that as Russia asserts itself on the global stage and we're looking at a new, we're looking at kind of a tectonic shift in geopolitics, this increases the chances for a large-scale catastrophe. And that's really scary. Well, I'll just say that, I mean, I, I share a slightly different view on, I mean, I, I agree with you that the anti-imperialists sort of taking a really extreme a pro-Russia perspective is is just kind of just lazy to me. It just doesn't, it's not that I don't feel like you have to condemn anything that Putin's doing. Cause like that whole sort of like you, you have, you must condemn so-and-so, or you feel like pressure to condemn another leader. I always think that's sort of like a trap, but I also think it's, it's strange to have to use a false argument about painting everybody in Ukraine as being neo-Nazi in order to justify your position that you're okay with, you know, like Putin making this decision to invade. If you're okay with, like, if you're pro that decision, like, I want to see at least a more interesting reason why you are, like a more thoughtful reason. Like, I'm not even like really offended if that's your position. It's just to use the position that it's good to denazify Ukraine or we're doing it to get rid of the Nazis in Ukraine and everybody should celebrate that. It's absolutely just like a dishonest way to frame it. It's like saying, I mean, again, it really does remind me of the, how the anti-imperialist perspective in Syria got fixated on this idea that everything where they were bombing anybody was like good because it was like killing terrorists, that Assad was no, getting exactly. rid of terrorists and that Russia was, you know, bombing ISIS and that was never questioned, and it was never even questioned that the U.S. was. It seemed like anti-imperialists were sort of like passively okay with both of those things. It just never really became an issue. And I just, I do think that, you know, we tend to forget how many sovereign countries the U.S. is waging war with simultaneously, not just with drones, but with special forces. We're in, we're literally in countries with troops. Optically speaking, I think it's going to be really hard for anti-imperialists to convince other people. Like, I'm not even saying these other people are right to think this, but I think it's going to be really hard for even like the smartest anti-imperialist who's going about this very smartly to convince other people that Russia did not somehow do something aggressive in this instance, that somehow this was a defensive move. I think it's going to be very hard to convince people because like, even I'm just looking at this situation being like, wow, this is shocking that he did this. Like, I'm I'm going to have a hard time explaining to most people without giving like 30 minutes of his contextual history of how this is this might be partly defensive. You know, you could tell them the NATO stuff, you can go into the Victoria Newland leak phone call and go into all that stuff and go into all the neo-Nazi stuff. Point it still doesn't make this seem like it's not an aggressive act. That's the issue here. So, I don't know. You know, it's a very challenging 
place to be to be like to cheer this on and i think you, you know there's there's probably an ideology that goes along with that that makes more sense but i just haven't really seen it espoused by very many people especially in the the twitter sphere yeah it's a lot of assumptions about what putin's intent is and what his strategy is like a lot of people tend to think of putin as some political genius like 5d chess player kind of like trump. similarly to trump well trump oh, said really? that about him he said he was a genius on laura ingram the like the night before and then the day after <laughs> he invaded trump literally bumps glenn greenwald live off the yeah. air he calls in while glenn is on laura ingram he has to like hang up real quick and then trump tells her you know this would have never happened if i was president and you know why, Laura? You know, someday I'll tell you all about why. It's I'll, I'm going to tell you all about it someday. But there's a reason why that Putin never did this when I was president. <laughs> just both playing 5D chess with each other. Yeah. Yeah. And also, just oddly, there's a weird video clip of Alex Jones, broken clock man, saying that he believes a major world war is going to start in mid-February 2022. And he said this about, I think, six months ago. At some Him point, and Robert Kagan drinking the same. Yeah. Good. Yeah, shit, dude. Man. What's going on? Is uh, is one of uh, the, the those Patriot insiders in the Q uh, network uh, feeding Alex Jones more intel? The Pachenik? slop bucket. Yeah. Slop bucket is f being fed directly to their fucking third eye, dude. It's all being synchronized together with Elon Musk's brain chip. We, it's like, yeah, Russia has been pretty savvy in the past ten years. The Syrian no-fly zone, like. Yeah, I mean, a lot of instances like the U.S. kind of did get punked, like policy wise, where Russia was just like, you know what, I'm not going to let this shit happen. Like, you know, there's several instances of that happening. The Syria war is obviously a primary red line, one. the red line. Yeah. But like this isn't that maybe when all the dust settles and all the blood is shed, then maybe you can, you know, give that sort of analysis. But I just find it just strange to do. I felt like I had to say something just because I was a direct state employee for Russia <laughs> And I am disgusted with what's going on. I feel like glorifying war in any instance is wrong. And only when it's absolutely necessary should we ever support a war, when it's completely defensive. And I don't think that you can make that case here. Um, what is Russia planning to do? None of us know, right? So that's the thing. I mean, is it full regime change? Is it just trying to get Ukraine to fully surrender? Are the airstrikes coinciding with major operations? Like, is Russia trying to go into the capital and completely depose the government? Do they have the capabilities to do this? Like, all of this is up in the air, and we don't know where it's going to go. But unless you have some insight. I do, yeah. Well, I mean, the only insight I have is from Manila Chan from RT, and I don't know where she got this from. I'm assuming it's not just out of nowhere. But she says, Kremlin issues two demands to Ukraine. Per Minsk II agreement, disarm. Two remain neutral, no joining NATO, no demands for Zelensky to step down, no demand for Ukraine to join Russian Federation. Putin says incursion can end now if terms are met. I guess I'm having a hard time processing that because like she's claiming, uh, I looked at her in the Twitter thread where she says this and someone's like, why didn't, were those demands asked before this military strike? And she said, yes. That's according to Manila Chan from RT is that these demands were already issued. Everybody, including Fred Kagan, seems to have called this very accurately. You know, even Alex Jones, somehow broken clock, randomly predicted there's going to be a major war at this time. Zelensky, though, this is interesting. Zelensky doubted the veracity of U.S. intel trying to convince him of an imminent invasion. Why was everybody else convinced? 
Why did all these news networks spend so much money to send all these people over there? Obviously, in a much more expensive capacity than like probably Vice ever did. You know, this is a big media operation. Part of this is confusing to me because why was Zelensky not convinced? Why wasn't he convinced? Did somehow the U.S. intentionally leave Ukraine a sitting duck and not give them the same intel that they were giving other people? Did they withhold something from Zelensky that made him still doubt the veracity of this? And I think that that's going to be an important question moving forward. And he's kind of in a situation now where he's begging you know, the U.S. for support. But what really happened here? Because here's where the, and I think this is actually from, um, I want to say the Washington Post. Yeah, it's from the Washington Post. In one camp, officials in Washington, London, and within Ukraine's national security establishment are convinced that a Russian strike is imminent. But Ukraine's President Zelensky is not persuaded that the intelligence Western nations have shown him backs up their dire assessments. In recent weeks, including those in Kiev who do not share Zelensky's sanguine view, have sounded exasperated with the Ukrainian president and his closest political advisors. There is growing sentiment that the United States is exaggerating the threat for political reasons, one Zelensky aide said, perhaps to force Ukraine to accept Russia's demand that it be barred from joining NATO. Hmm. I mean, so I guess that actually answers the question. That was a demand made previous to the invasion. So apparently, Pamela Chan was right. But I mean, that's, you know, like you were saying earlier, he doesn't seem like he is as straight up as a U.S. puppet as the earliest, you know, people who came in right after Yanukovych uh, that probably were just basically installed by the U.S. I mean, if that's if he didn't believe this and and like didn't make a huge deal about himself leading up to it, like our media did. What does that say? I think that leaves a lot of unanswered questions. All right. This is the last time I'm dropping in some additional commentary from after recording. Another way to look at this is that Russia was basically threatening military action for many, many months behind the scenes at these negotiations with NATO. So as shocking as this may seem for a lot of us, NATO members, including the U.S., uh, knew very well that this was a strong possibility. And I think that's why we saw them take the narrative and run with it, try to preempt putting out the narrative before Russia did anything. Um, So that's why you see people like Robert Kagan being like, oh, my God, he's nuts for doing this. It's like, well, okay, but you knew like that they might be crazy enough to do this. Right. I mean, you knew that that was a strong possibility. Let's just go back to January, where Russia met with 30 NATO states in a series of talks. This was one of many meetings where they tried to lay out deliberations and negotiations. And they continued to assert that their base security concern was that Ukraine never joined NATO. Um, And even though they had multiple other concerns about like troop deployments in other NATO countries that bordered Russia, they basically said that no other progress could be made on ballistic missile stuff, on troop deployments or anything unless this Ukraine joining NATO was a guarantee. It was rejected outright. And Ukraine, as well as NATO officials, basically said, we have to leave an open door policy with NATO. We have to open the possibility for Ukraine to join NATO. And there was never a resolution. And you had Russia's negotiator basically saying that the only option left was a military one if the diplomatic one became untenable. So I'm not excusing Russia at all. 
it's just interesting that this was literally like the choice was laid out for Biden and other NATO members. And they were just like, you know what, we're just going to take the risk that Russia is not going to do this. Pretty crazy stuff that they thought that this was an empty threat. Um, you know, and sadly, uh, here we are where they went through with it. And and of course, there's this a, a historical lens and framework that completely absolves the U.S. of its role and exacerbation of the tensions. And what you've seen as a result of the invasion is the fact that Biden isn't stopping everything to do negotiations. He's just sending hundreds of millions of more dollars funneling more weapons and support into Ukraine because they know that since Ukraine isn't a NATO power yet, that it would literally be like catapulting us into a full-blown nuclear conflict if they sent actual troops into Ukraine. So the best thing that the U.S. can do as well as these NATO members is like send more weapons into these insurgents fighting. Extremely volatile situation. And just for the record, I mean, it's not that Ukraine was on the doorstep of joining NATO. I don't take that narrative at face value either. This was not an imminent thing. Ukraine was not ready to sign the paperwork on NATO membership. In fact, there were several other diplomatic options that Putin had. Lobbying other NATO members like Germany, who could have prevented membership. And also, of course, there was other things that could have been done. This was this, it's, it's ridiculous to basically go to the defense of Putin and say, no, they they exhausted all of their options and they had to launch a full-scale invasion. And plus, if this was really about protecting these two semi-autonomous regions that you had Russian-backed separatists fighting these ultra-nationalist Ukrainians for years and years, um, why didn't he just try to annex or move into those territories? Why is this a full-blown invasion of Ukraine it seems like right now, and maybe it's too early to tell, but it does seem like this is a full-blown invasion advancing toward the capital in an attempt to take the entire country over and install a Russian-friendly regime. So a full-blown regime change operation. And we're just going to see how that plays out. So it just ended with basically little progress where Russia wanted an absolute declaration that Ukraine would not be folded into NATO and the removal of all of these dangerous weapons that, you know, as we talked about in the last podcast, the treaties have been abolished. The U.S. has pursued this aggressive strategy of tension where they've poured tens of millions of dollars, not only training like neo-Nazi insurgents on the ground in Ukraine to like exacerbate the civil war type stuff that was going on in these two autonomous, semi-autonomous regions, but they've also just sent all these fucking missiles that could reach Russian cities within minutes. It, it, it's a total tinderbox set up by the U.S. And so Russia was saying to these other NATO countries, like, this needs to stop, <laughs> which is like that was the two red lines forever. Don't put Ukraine in NATO and don't use Ukraine as a staging ground of hostilities and possible military confrontation with Russia. What was also this? There, and I forgot to actually probably do the proper research to find out about this, but there was also some claim it's obviously not mentioned in these official demands, but there was talk or rumors that Zelensky was somehow asking to bring in like nukes to like have oh, so I that didn't hear Ukraine that. can get nukes and have them stationed in Ukraine. But that was something else that was sort of used to spike the ball, I think, for the Russian argument in this. Right at the end of the Bush administration, we said we were moving in missile defense shields, like basically nuclear missile launchers into Poland 
to fend off a potential threat from an Iranian nuclear strike. And it's like, dude, we're moving it into Poland, into a NATO country. Like, of course Russia is going to think that that's like a provocation. And that's sort of like a big way a lot of this got off the rails in the first place, I think. Obama eventually, you know, said that it wasn't going to happen. He sort of revoked that plan. But, you know, I, it's clear that there are forces who have been trying to provoke Russia. And I think, you know, before it was like, why are we sticking the finger in the eye of like Russia? Why are we doing it? Like we were kind of like asking these questions for a long time. I feel like just amongst you and me, we would talk about this. And then now I think the answer is becoming more clear. It does seem like they've somehow provoked Russia into doing something that will look aggressive to most of the world. Regardless of what people think about it, it's going to be hard to spin this as this is not aggressive on Russia's behalf. It was that the poking the Russia in the eye strategy the whole time is just to get them to finally like do something, you know, so brazenly that it's like impossible to spin this. I, I don't know. It's, um, it's strange, Abby. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. I mean, I, this is speaking so early on, but like what's fascinating is like, you know, outlets like the New York Times are talking about how Ukrainians are now bracing for this violent battle and that officials are just telling residents to stay indoors and prepare Molotov cocktails. Oh, I saw that. Yeah. It. It's like, dude, can you imagine if like your government was just like, OK, like like everyone has to fend for themselves. Like everyone just needs to learn how to make Molotov cocktails so you can like try to fight the Russians who are coming to your door. It's just crazy. Like it's just crazy because Ukraine, it's like it shows how much of this is just it's just so much a bellicose rhetoric, but it's like, I mean, which I'm happy about. I'm happy that NATO hasn't done more and that the U.S. hasn't done more yet. But like, it is pretty crazy for someone like Zelensky and like the entire Ukrainian government to be like, what the fuck? Like, you guys really aren't going to do anything to help us? It's like, oh, you know, and then they're just, I mean, that's why you see Zelensky, I think in his most recent speech was just like ready to cave. Like he seems like way more timid when the first one, he was like begging them to do something like, please send troops, please help us. Everyone needs to come out in the streets. Like we're going to give weapons to anyone who wants them. I think it's too early to say. Yeah. I mean, it could even be a, pl a game where they're trying mm -hmm. to like that coverage could like, honestly, it reminds me of the coverage I already saw, of, like all the people sleeping in shelters, taking cover um, mm -hmm. in the subways and stuff like it's there is some effort being made right now to make the Ukrainians seem like these poor sitting ducks. And again, it brings like I already used the phrase sitting duck earlier. It's like it does seem like someone did not give the Ukrainian government the proper amount of intelligence to make them see how serious this this was going to possibly be. And that's odd to me. And then now it's like all this news coverage is making it seem like they have nothing. They're being resorted to Molotov cocktails. But at the same time, like we, they now do have tow missiles and things. They have missiles that can destroy armored tanks. We, that's what they were given partly in the three hundred million dollar weapon supplemental. Right. So um, where is all that shit? They have, they have jets. They have, um, you know, they have not just Azov battalion and large militias that are sponsored by the U.S. government, and some of those, you know, groups are also trained by uh, U.S. troops outside the borders of Ukraine. There's also militias like that are not neo-Nazi. You know, everyone wants to just talk about the neo-Nazi ones, but there are militias inside the Ukraine that are being trained by the CIA. And this has barely gotten any press. 
um, it was something that was, I forgot where I read it maybe a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and it was basically just saying that there are rebel programs that the CIA has been funding like this entire time, mm -hmm. um, completely outside of Azov. So there is sort of a shadow aspect of what's going on. The U.S. is still pretending like, you know, we did the right thing. We warned, we gave everybody a warning. We told everybody it was coming. And, you know, and Ukraine basically should have listened to us when they, when they, you know, but then said they didn't. They like didn't take us seriously enough. Maybe that's going to be the narrative moving forward. And to me, that I feel like that that's bullshit. <laughs> I'm like predicting what the narrative is going to be insane. Is <laughs> do you know what I'm saying though? Yeah, kind of. Yeah, I mean, let's let's briefly talk about what we didn't talk about on the last podcast, which is Donbas and Donetsk and Luhansk, these two regions that are bordering Russia. These are the regions that basically have been like held by Russian-backed separatists um, since 2014. I guess after the Maidan coup, Russian-backed separatists have been fighting like Ukrainian ultranationalists in these two regions for like the ever since 2014. And like 14,000 people have died there. 14,000 people have died in those regions. That's a lot of casualties. That's a lot of people dying I mean, that's a full-blown, like, civil war happening there. Well, is it, is it civil war? Is it the hybrid war? Is that part right. of the Russian invasion? All three have been used by different mm -hmm. aspects of the Western press at different times. And that's why, why a lot of this is so confusing, I think. And part of the Minsk agreement was to keep those zones, like, not claimed by Russia, right? Or Ukraine? I, I'm not exactly sure, but... That's why, like, this escalatory thing happened where Russia recognized the two regions as independent states and then ordered Russian troops there on a quote-unquote peacekeeping missions. That's all I know about that. But, like, that is crazy context that, that that sort of violence was taking place since then, you know, and it never really stopped. And people there were, you know, in the middle of all this chaos. Maybe we should just briefly mention how many different contradicting reports there are about the amount of casualties and how even that is not clear yet. You know, we're only mm -hmm. 36, 48 hours into this so far. So I guess it's maybe too high of an expectation to know this stuff. But I'll just quickly go through the counts, the latest counts that I was able to find. The Ukrainian government makes what I believe is a very unbelievable claim about the Russian losses so far. They claimed that 2,800 soldiers have been killed in the first 36 hours. Deputy Defense Minister Hanna Malyar said Friday that Russian troops also lost some 500 armored vehicles, 10 aircraft, and 7 helicopters. That is just frankly not believable. I mean, so why would they be saying that I, as odd to me? Is this all, you know, them puffing their chest out? Paper Tiger style, what is what's going on? I mean, where are those 500 armored vehicles they lost? Wouldn't there, I mean, you'd think there'd be a lot of footage of something that crazy happening. That's already. crazy. Yeah. There's something not real about that. The UN official count, the UN has reported officially that 25 civilians have been killed and 102 wounded. And they also say that they likely will be a significant underestimate once more data comes out. Zelensky himself came out and said that 137 civilians and military personnel, Ukrainian, have been killed so far in the Russian invasion. So that's a, higher than what the UN said. 
Um, he called them heroes in a video. Uh, and then he also says that 300 Ukrainians were injured in less than 24 hours of fighting. Russia's official numbers and statements so far. Uh, Russia said that it had, quote, eliminated 200 Ukrainian forces while capturing the key Hostomol airfield near Kiev, and 13 Ukrainians were killed while defending Snake Island. So that's their count, Russian governments. They don't, I, I couldn't find a Russian government count on their own uh, death toll so far, but I highly doubt it's anywhere near the 3,000 that the original Ukrainian government official came out and said. The only other official count of how many Russians have died so far, according to UK Armed Forces Minister James Yappi, uh, he told MPs that 450 Russian soldiers had been killed and at least 194 Ukrainians, including 57 civilians, have been killed. I mean, if that's accurate, that's pretty crazy too. I mean, and that also seems unlikely to me. Yeah, Again, nuts. also... Why would Russia even have done this if they didn't go in even harder? Like, why would they just flub this like that if they really lost that many people in the initial incursion? I mean, that seems like a really sloppy blunder on their part. You know, would it, what, unless there's something else going on that's going to like happen that's going to be crazier, it's hard to trust the numbers that are coming out so far. So I, th- I just think that we're going to need a, you know, like a, at least a couple more weeks before some of this dust settles to like get in a clearer picture of what's actually fucking happening. When we were together, because I was just home a couple days ago and like all the news was just like Russia did it. Russia invaded. And we were you and I just like looked at each other and we were just like, we do not believe this. And like it just was so surreal to see this live feed of I don't know actually know how to say Kiev properly. But um, it was just like this weird plume of white smoke, like rising from the building. It was just on a loop. And I was just like, what the fuck? Like, I just didn't believe it until like over a day later when Russia actually was like, yeah, we <laughs> we invaded. Like when they actually admitted that they sent troops in and started like launching missile attacks. Like I that's how crazy the level of distrust is in our institutions because of how much they lie about everything. Or at the very least, mischaracterize something so yeah, it just becomes right. confusing as to what's actually happened. Here's what Gumby actually said. Um, he says, in retrospect, the most worrying signal that Ukraine would escalate into a full-scale war was when every U.S. network started piling reporters into the country. CNN celebrity anchor Aaron Burnett began broadcasting live from Lviv two weeks ago. I mean, yeah, that is very worrisome. I... I mean, there is not very much coverage of this stuff back during the original 2014 like upheaval, the the U.S. Mm-hmm. versus mm-hmm. Russia proxy war in Ukraine. There was a like I had to comb through stuff for the a very heavy agenda movies to show all that footage in there. I tried to find of it as much of it as I possibly could. It was surprisingly undercovered. That's why Obama was sort of able to ghost it and sort of even like barely even say anything about it, like while it was all happening. I mean, the amount of things Obama said on record about Putin during that time period was like shockingly little. Biden, I guess in sort of a surprising term, what I I think is probably, you know, maybe one of the more positive signs to come out so far out of this is that Biden's press conference the morning after this invasion happened was extremely meek, not aggressive at all rhetorically compared to his previous speeches leading up to this 
It surprisingly offers virtually no new threats for military action or even with NATO. The only specific threat was more sanctions and news and cyber attacks, which could be a really big deal, but that's all he overtly threatens in the speech. But even the sanctions that Joe Biden laid out that he's, that he's going to do weren't good enough for the reporters. Like every single reporter from Fox News, from NBC, MSNBC, CNN, they were all like kind of shocked uh, at this press conference that the response from the U.S. was so lukewarm the day after this invasion. I would say that every member of the press that was questioning Biden, you could hear this sort of almost like desperation in their tone of voice, or it was almost like they were begging Biden to be more harsh or aggressive and just the responses to their questions. And I thought it was actually really surprising that Biden took this sort of very casual, cautious, meek tone and didn't play into any of like the attempts for any of these reporters to like like a pissing contest in far, as far as like trying to make the U.S. Uh, declare some kind of aggressive response. Well, I guess probably the worst thing that he said was that Biden uh, said he will not be talking to Putin after this incident. I don't know if that means indefinitely or what, but then Jen Psaki today slightly 180'd from that uh, right before we started recording this. She said that their administration will still diplomatically be speaking to Russia because one of the most important items on the table right now is still to how to hash out the Iran deal. And she basically acknowledged that to a reporter that even with this going on, they're still going to have to be diplomatic. They're still going to talk to Russia. Out of everything Biden said, very little super alarming things that he said that the U.S. are going to respond to do, except cyber attacks, which could be really open-ended, could mean a lot of different things. But he explicitly stated uh, that Ukraine is not a NATO country. He like I think he reminds people in his speech that it's not a NATO country. And if Putin does anything like this to a NATO country, there's already like all these rules in place. What happens when an Article 5 country gets attacked? And then the U.S. will do like a full response. But stating explicitly that it's not, I think, is a way to sort of back off. Right, right, right. It's a way to save face. Yeah. Uh, it could have been a much worse. Mm-hmm. You know, the re- rhetoric was really escalating before an exceeding Obama administration's era of rhetoric leading up to this. But after it happens, like I'm kind of breathing a sigh of relief that the rhetoric is softer after the fact. Saki also said explicitly what Biden will not do is send U.S. troops into Ukraine. He will not engage U.S. into a war with Russia. Now, I mean, how is this not a distinct shift in tone away from the aggressive stance they were taking just a week ago? I mean, it blatantly is, you know, for her to say this the day after this happens. Would you agree? Of course. The reporter hilariously asks her sort of towards the end of the press conference, well, hasn't Putin been invading for years on end? <laughs> Yeah, technically, that's been the whole the whole argument. I thought that the U.S. was painting it this way, but again, even if he has been, um, and the U.S. has sort of been waging a proxy war, why was this such an escalation? Like, what was the need to do it right. so visibly? Like that's this? what that's what I'm so confused about. Because I mean, technically, you could make the same argument for the strategy that Putin's carrying out now for the last seven, eight years. It's like exactly. what exactly happened now. It seems smarter to, I mean, just like I'm going to just say from a strategic point of view, it seems smarter to make it like unprovable that Russia is invade, like doing any kind of incursion into Ukraine if it's just using like Russian backed separatists. Right. I mean, that seems like a smart strategy. 
And feeding them weapons and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But why would they give exactly what these NATO hawks and like neocons exactly what they want? And a visible brazen incursion. Why would they do that? Um, That's the question that is confusing to me. And I, part of me thinks maybe they figured out a way to bait him finally into doing it. Like I really, part of me believes that, you know, and I don't know even what that means, why they would want to do that. Why, you know, is it, is this sort of the final way to make it seem like the U.S. is not uh, the, you know, imperialist? Are we going to see another wave of, now we need to start talking about how like Russia is the most imperialistic threat in our world right now, you know? Like, I, I pre- we probably will, you know, well, like editorials in mass. He, yeah. I mean, for years. I've been looking at people like Mark Ames and Yasha Levine, who I trust on Russia because they're not they don't just fit neatly into this box where it's like they're just uncritically regurgitating Russia's talking points. But they all are also very harshly critical of the U.S.'s role. And so it's it's fascinating to see what their analysis is. And Mark Ames just said, quote, through the horror, I can't stop thinking about the sheer idiocy Putin is creating and reinforcing all the things he is most scared of that were once phantom. A Ukraine that's alien to Russia and despises it and a massive reinvigoration of NATO and huge anti-Russian resolve. Uh, So kind of just going back to what you're saying, it's like it does play directly into the hands of the West. It's also a very symbolic uh, gesture of quote unquote strength. You know, just like we talk about how the neocons calculate game theory here about like, like who's going to blink first, or it's basically just like a staring contest. I mean, this is Putin, you know, and maybe in some ways, like this, this could be the pivot to like that unipolar world move where it's like, this is our time now kind of not, I mean, like, not like they're going to like do anything more than this. I just mean, you, the U.S. no longer has any means to dictate world affairs, now, we know that that's not true, that the U.S. is probably doing anything it can right now to figure out how to take down Russia, but it's like optically, it is an opportunity um, to make it seem like Russia is standing up to the United States. Like, it really does look good for them in that sense. I could see how certain people in Russia, probably a lot of the more sort of more right-wing Russians would be very excited about this moment because it really is looking like he is taking a stand against anything that the West can possibly do in response. Well, that that's exactly in a really was, big way. That's what I was trying to say. Yeah, it's like the whole perception of Putin is, of course, going to be doubled down. How could it not be? This is just going to cause this huge reinvigoration of all the anti-Russia sentiment. But at the same time, it's not like that needed to be legitimized. Like they were going to run with that forever anyway. Yeah, 100%. And, and Putin, I think, does obviously doesn't fucking care if he's viewed as a monster from the West. Like he knew that that was, he knew that he was blamed for the election. He knew that he was blamed for everything, right? Like Europe can't risk doing anything in retaliation because it's, it's escalating this full blown war in a European country that would basically destabilize the entire continent. And so they're going to be very hesitant to dive in. And also I think that Russia must feel like it's in a position to stave off the impact of sanctions. It, depending on how well-trained these quote-unquote insurgency forces are from the U.S., this could get into a really fucking crazy quagmire that could last for months. I, I mean, I, I get really apocalyptic about this stuff. I, I, for 
a good 24 hours, I was thinking, you know, maybe this is going to be the end of the world finally, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, I, I know a lot of people are sort of mocking the idea that this is going to be the, the pathway to world war three, but I mean, the doomsday clock people who've actually been like looking at all this stuff for decades, you know, they've been moving the arm closer to midnight. It's been getting closer and closer. This is Cuban missile crisis, territory level scariness. The only th reason that it's not as scary as that is because the U.S. somehow is like taking this like we're cucked. We're fucking. Yeah. Just like Putin cuck. Like we don't give a shit. Like, yeah, we're going to like basically just ride this out and like not let any of the media like influence us for some reason now to act more aggressive rhetorically. Who the fuck knows what they're doing behind the scenes? You know, not, uh, you know, like not in public. They're probably doing some really crazy aggressive shit, but. It's really strange. I mean, it's basically like, yeah, yeah, Putin invaded. We're just going to like sanction. We're not going to take him out of the SWIFT international banking system, mm -hmm. even though that's we could. what I was talking about. We're the not going to do anything like, fuck it. Like, we're going to let him do all this shit still. It's not, it's fine. You know, we're, I'm not going to talk to Putin, but actually, we do still have to deal with him because the Iranian <laughs> nuclear agreement. It is a shockingly lukewarm. I mean, it is like almost like more shocking than how Obama just never signed that $300 million weapon supplemental himself that he sort of passed on to the next administration. This is like a rhetorical 180, I think. I, re I really do. But I mean, Putin's speech uh, was also sort of weird. Like, you know, I don't really know what to make of his attitude right now, but it does seem like his speech was largely about the history of like US foreign policy, you know, like since basically 9-11, like doing all this terrible stuff in Iraq, Libya, mm -hmm. Syria. It blames, you know, rightfully so, uh, the U.S. for all this shit. Oh, the, I guess the funniest part from the speech, I thought, was that he goes into the, um, the excuse for weapons of mass destruction. Now, what I thought was a little bit odd is, you hear all this stuff about how Putin is like a Machiavellian genius, 40 chess, uh, you know, this extremely smart strategist, but he actually mentions twice in his speech, and this is not a mistranslation. I actually asked a couple of Russian speakers if this was a mistranslation. He fucks up twice and like references Colin Powell's vial prop as being like a chemical weapon. And he and he says it again. Wait, wait, in the repeat speech. that? So Putin actually says, like, remember when Colin Powell holds oh, right. up that vial of chemical weapons? And then he again says that the that it's chemical weapons that Powell is making the case for chemical weapons while holding up that prop. And I just find that kind of odd because it's like, ba to me, it's just like basic knowledge that he was talking about biological weapons, specifically in that part of the speech. And this is like a, obviously a written speech. It wasn't Putin just like talking off the cuff. So you would think, you know, he has speech writers. They would not, they would just get that part wrong. Harkens back to that weird part from that Oliver Stone documentary about Putin where Putin is like trying to brag about their fight against ISIS to Oliver Stone. And he pulls up his cell phone to Stone and he pulls up a video and he's showing Oliver Stone a video that's like that infrared footage. And he's telling Oliver Stone that this is Russian troops fighting ISIS in Syria. Now, the video he's actually showing Oliver Stone is U.S. soldiers fighting like, um, out, like Taliban in Afghanistan from like 2008. It's super weird. Like, you would think that a president would be more on top of shit to like, of all the things to do to like show a documentary filmmaker who's there getting an exclusive interview with you the wrong footage of like 
American troops fighting someone and that saying they're your nuts. troops? That is like, what does that even mean? I don't know what it means other than like Putin just is, I don't, you know, everybody Five says he's chess, a genius, maybe. <laughs> but it honestly seems that he is kind of like out of the loop and just sort of getting talking points from people. His speech seemed kind of like lazy, sloppy, like kind of like Jackson Hinkle-esque, like weird, like, like bad, like, like not very like rhetorically clever, like um, just sort of like U.S. foreign policy bashing, even though like point by point, he's right on the things he's saying. It just seemed like you could have gotten a little better of like a, you know, bolstered his case a little better in his speech. I don't know. That was my takeaway from it. Yeah, well, I found it interesting that a lot of corporate news outlets did not publish the transcript in full, as opposed to, of course, Biden and Zelensky's for obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. and, and you saw a lot of them cut away, not showing the huge rant about NATO expansion, you know, because they don't want to legitimize that talking point, that this could have been avoided, that it was a lot of it was instigated by the U.S. There were these terms and conditions that were not met very clearly laid out with all these NATO member states that there was uh, attempted negotiations that were thrown out the window time and again. And so it is funny to see like how it's covered. But yeah, I could not even find a full transcript, oddly enough. Um, but but the little that I did see, of course, highlighting how he's like reminding people that he's a nuclear power, that Russia's a nuclear power and that they will use the full weight of their nuclear arsenal against any country that tries to stop them. <laughs> Where it's just like, damn, dude, like this is not a fucking joke, man. And I think Nate, the idea of Ukraine going into NATO at this point is fairly unrealistic. Right. I, I just, I, I see it's almost now much less of a possibility, not just because Russia's doing this, but just the, you know, it's just such a flashpoint. I'm still sort of stuck on this idea of that the U.S. did not seem to do anything overt or public to seriously try and thwart Russia from invading. Mm -hmm. They said they were going to invade and they seem to just like really want to emphasize it and make everybody ready to just get ready for it. But there was definitely a rhetorical toughness to the U.S. rhetoric leading up to it. But since it's happened, there seemed to be virtually no actual protection offered to the Ukrainian border or airspace. But again, how would they have offered Right, that's, that's what I'm saying. How would they do it? The, the, that's the thing. I mean, would they do it covertly? I guess the only other options would have been you know, NATO or U.S. troops and if either one of those happened, the first U.S. troop to walk over the border, first NATO plane to fly in there, that's going to mark an extremely huge escalation that drags all the NATO nations in at that point. One NATO nation does not fight on its own. It'll be catastrophic. It, it is true. Like It is savvy in the sense that it's almost like they know that NATO and the U.S. can't do anything unless like the narrative flips and then becomes like, well, actually, that could have been avoided because that could like that that will undoubtedly escalate to a war that we've never seen before. Um, and so it's almost like they know they know that they wouldn't do it because under even what legality like can that happen because Ukraine's not a nation NATO member yet. What if it was a mind game partly to make Russia the whole time think mm -hmm. or to just get it into their heads that we were trying to get them into NATO and that was the end goal? Even if we at a certain point were like, we're never going to be able to get Ukraine into NATO, but let's make Putin think. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We already want to do these things, you know, geopolitically. So let's let, let make him think we're going to do this. It is sort of interesting to think how much 
what kind of thinking went into all this. It is it is sort of classic Soviet Union versus the United States game theorying out all these different possibilities and branching off, you know, possibilities. If this happens, will we do this? Mm-hmm. So I think that that mentality still pervades today in the way that this is happening. But just an example of how cucked we are looking right now, and just almost just like unabashedly so, like we don't give a fuck. It's like humiliation, cuck porn almost. Like that's how extreme we're acting. John Kerry said, I hope diplomacy will win. This is after the invasion. And John Kerry is like in the administration right now. I hope diplomacy will win. But equally importantly, you're going to lose people's focus. You're going to lose certainly big country attention, Mr. Kerry said. I think hopefully President Putin would realize that in the northern part of his country, they used to live on 66% of frozen land. Now it's thawing and his infrastructure is at risk and the people of Russia are at risk. I hope Mr. Putin will help us stay on track with respect with what we need to do for the climate. <laughs> so what? I love that that's, I love that he tries to pivot to climate change. Like what the fuck? So but John Kerry like didn't even try to like really address the actual, you know, specifics of what's happening. He just pivots to climate change, which is amazing. That is incredible, dude. I mean, can we just talk about just the extreme, like, uh, Eurocentrism, too, in the coverage? Of course, not only because Russia is a deemed enemy of the U.S., but just, like, the obsession with the fact that Europeans are being, like, bombed, you know, and invaded. And and it just becomes so much more, like, shocking to Europeans and white people. And I and I don't think it's just the oh, proximity. Yeah. I think it's because of the dehumanization of people who are not white oh, being course, permanent 100%. victims of the war on terror for the last 20 years. And so it's like just the fact 100%. that within the last week, Somalia was bombed by the U.S., Yemen's being bombed every day by the Saudi-U.S. coalition, this genocidal bombing campaign. And it's like it's so fucking normalized and that should really disturb us all. Just check out some of the commentary from anchors covering this, compiled by Alan McLeod at Mint Press News. Me, I'm sorry. It's really emotional for me because I see European people with blue eyes and blonde hair being killed. Children being killed every day with Putin's missiles. Now, as you're talking to us, Matthew, we're playing in the latest pictures of some of the refugees trying to get on trains or trying to get out of Ukraine. And, and what's compelling is just looking at them the way they're dressed. These are prosperous, I'm loath to use the expression, these are prosperous middle-class people. These are not obviously refugees trying to get away from areas in the Middle East. They look like any European family that you would live next door to. Now the unthinkable has happened to them. And this is not a developing third world nation. This is Europe. Tens of thousands of people have tried to uh, flee the city. There will be many more. People are hiding out in bomb shelters. But this isn't a place, with all due respect, um, you know, like Iraq or Afghanistan that has seen conflict raging for decades. You know, this is a relatively civilized, uh, relatively European, I have to choose those words carefully too, uh, city where you wouldn't expect that or hope that it's going to happen. Just the fact that even if this does work, like in the sense of Russia's strategy, like even if Ukraine immediately folds and then just pledges like we're never going to join NATO and basically capitulates to all the demands that Putin's putting out there. How disturbing is that, that Russia basically is taking a like you can't even blame them in the sense that they are taking a cue from what has worked on the international stage.
the lack of accountability, the paving the way for this sort of unilateral imposing warfare done by the U.S. empire and its allies to completely dominate regions, do lawless invasions, abandoning diplomacy. Well, yeah. I mean, can I flesh out a little bit more information on this is according, this is more official information from Russia's side. The press secretary, and this is actually an official release from Rupley, but it says the press secretary of the president of Russia, Dmitry Peskov, told journalists on Friday that Kiev went out of contact during the discussion between both parties to carry on diplomatic negotiations amid the Russian incursion in Ukraine. He added that Vladimir Putin agreed to organize the meeting in Minsk and asked Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko to ensure the arrival of the delegation and their safety. After a short pause, the Ukrainians announced that they were reconsidering the idea with Minsk and that now they want to go to Warsaw. And after that, they left the connection altogether and took a pause. This pause has been going on for quite a long time. Unfortunately, this pause is accompanied by the fact that in large cities, the president spoke about this at the Security Council. National elements are also deploying multiple launch rocket systems in residential areas, including Kiev, said Peskov. So, wow. It's a little bit confusing if this was talking about before any like actual military moves were made inside Ukraine overtly or right after they tried to negotiate. I'm not exactly sure the timeline of this, but either way, it is. I think it does say a lot. I mean, it says that I think Zelensky is probably, you know, he's taking advice from someone who just probably wants him to like just make some kind of more just like ballsy, bloviating statement or rhetorically act tough when it seems like we've just kind of left him to be a sitting duck. I mean, honestly, that's what it seems like. So Mm. it's very odd. That is super odd. The Pentagon announced that it was sending 7,000 additional soldiers on top of the 3,000 that were already sent. Uh, I don't know how many weeks ago, just to bolster its presence on, you know, the bordering countries, NATO countries. Um, It's just such a reckless, dangerous situation. It could have been avoided, but here we are. And now um, the fact that there's, you know, even troop deployments being prepared for something to potentially escalate in a really dramatic fashion is just terrifying it's up to us to actually provide an independent analysis that is pushing peace, like an anti-imperialist analysis that is pushing peace and de-escalation. Because the most important thing that we can do as American citizens and for people who are listening that live in NATO countries or countries that have partnerships with the U.S. is pressure our own governments to continue to de-escalate the situation. And that's that's really all we can do. Like, literally, there's nothing else that we can do other than organize and try to, you know, generate anti-war rallies and show show force in the streets the same way that Russians are doing right now. There's been a huge force of anti-war sentiment in Russia. Um, A lot of arrests. I think over a thousand people were arrested. Thousands of people out in the streets of St. Petersburg, of Moscow protesting this. War is never the answer. War is hell. And tons of innocent people um, get caught in the crossfire. And that's not to excuse the war that's been going on, that's been fed by both sides in these regions. It's to say that, you know, we should never excuse war and we should never celebrate war. It should be the absolute last resort. And we should also push the, the abolition of NATO because 
The fact that NATO was formed as this alleged fight against communism, when really it was just to maintain a unipolar world and to stave off any country from becoming as strong as the Soviet Union again. But it's just like the the logic is just completely absent of why NATO exists, why it continues to expand dangerously. Um, And that's fascinating. The fact that NATO is still seen as this defensive force. It's like, dude, clearly this is like a totally calculated scheme. They were trying to push it to see it as far as they could fucking go. They got away with the 2014 coup. They kept pushing it. They kept poking the fucking bear. And all of the shit that Biden just did, sending troops and weapons as a staging ground in Ukraine, it was just like something was bound to happen at some point. Just for myself, I I don't feel comfortable like supporting the anti-war movement in Russia because it's just too hard to tell which activist factions in Russia are being like weaponized, you know, not weaponized immigrants because they're not immigrants, but like weaponized activists here, you know, after Pussy Riot. The U.S. has created so much murkiness and so much of a a hall of mirrors when it comes to like people's activists in other countries that it's too hard for me to support those movements really at this point but i do fully support abolishing nato i mean i i don't support what russia is doing in terms of like bombing another country i do support the idea of a, a world that is not dominated by the dictates of the united states in where the United States can just tell every other country what to do and create all these threatening scenarios and paradigms to, to make it basically just continue our empire to grow. So at some point, I guess I'm sort of resigned to the fact that this is bound to get ugly if America is not going to be in control of that or is not going to keep that position forever. And I don't, I'm not saying that that's good or bad, that like bad results are going to happen from that, but like things are going, it's going to be painful in a lot of ways. Like America itself has never experienced on its own homeland uh, an actual war. We don't even know what war is really like. We're lucky. And, you know, for this empire to face its wrath, there's going to be a lot of ugly shit that's going to happen on its way down. If that is going to happen, like if the American empire collapses. And another scary thing I will just leave people off with, I don't want to be too depressing, but after a large economic downturn, a period of like societal depression, people being very, very confused, poor, a lot of people losing their homes, their jobs, and their livelihood, other periods in history that have had economic downturn like this, uh, where people have been suffering this much, these are the times in history where terrible wars happen. If you look back in history, it's wars that are really bad and catastrophic usually do not happen when things are doing really well. They usually happen in times of like downturn. We're two years into a global pandemic and everybody's tense. Like everything just feels really tense still. And like imagine how these people in charge of the nuclear arsenal, like how that's affecting their psychology too. Like it's frightening as fuck. And I just hope I don't, you know, get sucked into a, a spiral of being like really scared. <laughs> We're just going to turn like, into our parents basically. Yeah. It's just going to turn into another cold war, even though there's no warring ideology in terms of economic policy. It's just like competing capitalist powers. I just encourage everyone to keep cool heads, continue to call for de-escalation, and continue to provide the relevant and essential context 
to the situation to anyone that you hear talking about it because it really is crucial. Like, yes, of course, what Putin is doing is wrong, but you also really need to stress that everything that the U.S. has done is extremely wrong and has basically paved the way for this exact situation to play out. It's as clear as day, dude. All of the shit was laid out over two decades ago. The Clinton administration promised Russia that NATO combat troops would not be stationed in Eastern Europe, that NATO would not expand one inch beyond the already agreed upon borders. And like, that's all very important historical context to understand how we got here and to not let the U.S. off the hook, even though Russia does something that is brazen and criminal. It doesn't mean that what the U.S. is doing is right or just. It means that two thoughts can be true at the same time. Basically, uh, the Institute for the Study of War, Kim Kagan, it's a think tank, has been doing daily Ukraine updates on their website. So if you go to understandingwar.org slash backgrounder slash Ukraine dash conflict dash updates, uh, you can see what they're, you know, hyping up. Fred Kagan did this talk on the Critical Threats Project at the American Enterprise Institute right after the invasion, which I recommend people watch if they want a little taste of what a very heavy agenda four might look like. And Victoria Newland said in an interview with Face the Nation a month ago, when this was all bubbling up, she said, we've been giving Ukraine the kinds of defensive lethal equipment that they need in order to be able to make this. If Russia makes that big mistake and moves in a very bloody fight and slow Moscow's role. So defensive lethal equipment like anti-tank, like anti-air, all of these kinds of things. We have also worked with our European allies on a massive package of economic sanctions so that if he does move on Ukraine, he will feel it acutely, as will the Russian people in terms of their economy. I mean, this is a very obvious thing that these people do, but it's very interesting just to hear her say it in an interview. And she says, but with regard to this package of sanctions, you know, deterrence is best when there's a little bit of strategic ambiguity around exactly what we're going to do. So we've said financial measures, we've said export controls, but if we put them on the table now, then Russia will be able to start mitigating and that doesn't make any sense to us. So she's basically saying that she doesn't want to like put anything new on the table that they're actually doing because then Russia's going to know our game plan. So she's basically distinguishing between why this rhetoric is strategically important to put out there and why that's okay too, but how there's other things that they're doing that are ambiguous on purpose because we got a long game here. We know our shit. Not surprising. That's how we do. So it's interesting to think about what they're actually aiming to do and how that differs from the rhetoric that's coming out. Because this really drastic change in the direction of being like, we're just cucked. John Kerry's like, let's just talk about climate change, bro. Like, I want to talk about Russia's frozen tundra. That's more dangerous than like Russia invading Ukraine. I mean, <laughs> that's a wild uh, thing, like rhetorical shift. So, yeah, it seems like someone like the leader of like Iceland would say. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's pretty much it. Do you have any? My final thought is just to call for de-escalation because all we can do as people living in this country is, is hope and pray that our government does not do anything more. I just can't fathom on top of the apocalyptic vision of climate change to think that we're like on the doorstep of nuclear Armageddon. It's just a lot to handle. So I just hope cooler heads prevail and that the U.S. knows when to fucking back down. But knowing the, the insanity and belligerence of the U.S., Robbie, I, I fear the worst.
I fear the worst too because it seems like right now they're playing possum mm -hmm. and that's not something we do. You know, when Obama did a little bit of that in his administration, it seemed maybe really like it was coming from him. Like when he told Robert Kagan he didn't want a nuclear war with Russia and that's why he didn't sign off on the 300 million. But like this seems odd to play it now. I do worry. I am afraid it's going to be like they're playing possum right now and then it's going to be like a mountain lion. That's a sneak attack. Like it's going to be blending into the background and then right before you can tell what's going to happen, it's just going to be like, boom. There's, I, there's going to be some kind of U.S. I, I, I'm just going to say it. There's going to be some kind of U.S. response and I, it's not going to be pretty and I'm, I'm worried about it, genuinely worried. So yeah, like it is almost too hopeful that they're acting this sort of meek at the moment. Well, we'll have to see. We'll have to wait and see. You guys, thank you for listening. Let us know what you think. And we're going to keep following the situation very closely. Take care, everybody. And if you are listening out there and you're not already a Patreon subscriber to Media Roots Radio, please consider donating for as little as $5 a month or per creation, per podcast. And that gives you access to one premium bonus episode per month. And every month we put out one bonus episode and there's a lot of content that's just available to our patreon subscribers so check it out and take care everybody